Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We bring you free-flowing conversations with top thought leaders in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Sit back, relax, listen and enjoy as we share ideas and discuss topics that are important, timely, and we hope will transform the nonprofit world. Hello, and welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. This is episode 12, recorded Thursday, March the 8th, 2018. I'm Vincent Duckworth. I'm a fundraiser and a partner with the Trail Group. We are a national agency focused on bold leadership and transformative fundraising. In this episode, our third of the year, we will be speaking with Michelle Regal, Director of Development at Telespark in Calgary, Alison Pitscalney, Campaign Director at the YW Calgary, and Steve Baker, Chief Operating Officer at the TELUS World of Science in Edmonton. Today's topic, what happens when we hire fast and fire slow? HR mistakes we keep making in the nonprofit sector and what to do about it. Recruiting in the nonprofit sector overall is tough. Recruiting fundraisers is even more challenging. How can we take the time we need to hire the best? How can we keep them motivated, inspired, and performing at the top of their game? And if, for whatever reason, they are not a fit, how can we let them go with compassion and care? We have brought together three nonprofit leaders, each an expert in hiring and motivating staff, to help us understand just how to best answer these questions and more. Join us as we discuss this important topic and how we can all become leaders who inspire and motivate. Coming up next on Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Betrayal. We have three fantastic guests with us today, each with their own unique perspective and experience. I'm excited. They're excited. Let's get started. Joining us from Edmonton, we have Steve Baker. Steve and I have known each other as long as we have both been fundraisers. We serve together on the board of the Edmonton chapter of the Association of Fundraising Professionals. Steve, it's really great to have you on the podcast. Glad to be here. Steve, we're going to dig into your experiences with hiring and managing staff later in the podcast. But before we do that, I know you're a bit of a crazy person when it comes to competitive trail running and running (laughs) in general. I remember running in the same marathon as you a few years back and feeling pretty good at finishing in just over two hours. Uh, I know that was a a half marathon. When I saw you after and asked how you did, you said, well, my my legs held out, but I was only able to run it in one and a half hours. Uh, You've also (laughs) run in the Canadian death race, both solo and as part of a, a relay. Can you can you take a few minutes and tell us about that experience? Uh, well, that experience is actually, dare I say, almost defines me in some ways because I started that off when that event started in 2000, and I've ran it every year since, so it's going into its 19th year now. And I'm actually the only person that's done it every year that's been crazy enough. And the piece that that then starts to make me realize my age even more than you know, day-to-day aches is the fact that there's people that are now running in that race that weren't even born when it started. <laughs> that kind of throws me off. And I'm going, good God. You know, that's the piece that makes me suddenly feel my age. You know, and not my granddaughter and that, but it's, it's, it's elements like that. So, but, uh, you know, the event in itself and any of these other races that I do, I tell you, and people ask me, why do you do them? I said, well, because I can. Um, because my body allows me to do this right now and I intend to keep on doing it until I can't. And I get these questions of people saying, well, don't you hurt? And I said, I hurt all the time. 
so I may as well do something with it, and I may as well keep myself active and uh, you know get moving. So yeah, my legs hurt, my knees hurt, and and every other part of my body that possibly can. But it's a pile of fun, and I meet some amazing people, and it and it also gives me time, quite frankly, where I'm just off running in the mountains, me in the trees, and maybe bears and whatever else looking at me, and um, and I could be on my own completely for a couple hours before I see anybody again. And I love that aspect of things. Not that I want to be a loner, but I just love the solitude of that. And it gives you a lot of time to think about different things. So That's awesome. But So for the folks in our listening audience that don't know, what is the Canadian Death Race? Oh, okay. So that aspect of it. So it's a... Uh um, it's an ultra marathon. It's 125 kilometers, held up in uh, Grand Cache up in northern Alberta, and uh, it's yeah, you cover 125 kilometers, 18,000 feet of elevation gain uh, in it. You've got you have to complete it in 24 hours. It's an extremely technical uh, race in the mountains, single track, running really rocky, uh, steep climbs, steep descents, just crazy terrain. You can be in all kinds of weather. I've actually ran the race where you you've ran in 30 degree weather. And in the same day of being in a hailstorm, uh, lightning storm, uh, that race has had snow on it, and it happens the first week in August. So it, you have no idea what the race is going to throw your your direction. So, and it's it, but it's an incredible event. And there's people from it's truly an international event. People come from all over the world to take part in it, and um, and it has actually spawned a pile of other massive ultra marathon races in Alberta, across Canada, and into the United States. There were others before it, but it certainly you know kind of reset the benchmark about what things happen. Wow, I'm tired just listening to that. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Uh, our next panelist also is is uh, is from Calgary and no stranger to our podcast. Allison Pitscanley joined us on episode five, where we and this is episode twelve, where we spoke about the future of capital campaigns. Allison, welcome back. Thanks, Allison. When we last spoke to you, you had just left your position at Telespark as the vice president of external affairs. Now, amongst other things, you're the campaign director at YW Calgary. First, congratulations. Oh, thank and you. It's a brilliant project. Second, can you tell us a little bit about what YW is and, and what it's up to? And and I say why tell us about YW because it just went through a rebranding. I, I know what it is, but I'm wondering if our listening audience knows what YW Calgary is. Oh, well, thanks for the opportunity to do that. Um, so YW Calgary is a uh, women-centered Women for Women organization um, supporting women experiencing homelessness or women experiencing um, abuse. And so we offer sheltering for these women. But we also, what a lot of people don't know, is we offer programming that um, moves women quickly from basic survival mode to thriving. And, you know, what actually draw me, uh, drew me into this project was a campaign that the YW is about to launch. So we're currently in silent mode, but I'll be letting the cat out of the bag for our listeners. Um, that it's a campaign to build a brand new hub facility for the YW in Calgary. Um, and it's a unique project in the sense that instead of taking um, all of the YW's assets and dumping it into this new space, what the YW is doing is setting aside some of what it has into a sustainability fund so that the organization itself can not only have a beautiful new home and a home for up to 100 women um, facing crisis, but also the organization itself can survive the ups and the downs of the economy, which I think is an issue that a lot of charitable organizations face, and I just felt that it took a lot of courage 
for the organizations that decide to do that and then um, fundraise against that strategy. Mm. Well, thanks for that. So it, 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 the YW is the rebrand of the YWCA, right? Hmm? Yeah. Is that right? Okay. Yeah, so it's Good. still a member of the international YWCA movement for sure. Yeah. Um, but to be able to distance ourselves from the YMCA, uh, are um, sort of some people think sister organization, but in fact we very, we serve very different groups of people in very distinct ways. So when the mm-hmm. YW decided to rebrand, they wanted to be able to distance themselves and set up a distinct um, identity. Well, that's great. I really love the, the, the feel and look of the new brand too. So I'm glad that uh, you're able to share that with us. So mm-hmm. we'll circle back. Thanks very much, Allison. Michelle, were you able to get back on? I'm right here. Awesome. I'm so glad that you're here. I was wondering if you were there and you waited and that was awesome. So also joining us this morning, our third panelist from right here in Calgary, we have Michelle Regal. So glad to have you on. Michelle has recently joined Telespark. Yes, the sister science center to the one Steve works for and the <laughs> one that, that Allison used to work for. Um, no, this isn't a story. This isn't a podcast about science centers, but we, we should do one. Um, but you've joined them as their director of development. Prior to joining the Spark, uh, Michelle worked with us at the Treo. Uh, Michelle, first, let me say, we miss you. Um, oh, uh, you're breaking my heart. <laughs> yeah, but we also are very happy happy for the spark. And second, you know, like I said, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, Michelle, your credentials in recruiting and managing high-performance fundraisers is without question, and, and we're going to get into that later. But what I really want to know is how, how's, yeah. your house pro- how's your house oh, project you're... going? I mean, <laughs> you're building a house around you. Tell us a little bit about this massive reno and how's it, how's it going. Oh, well, you know what? The next time my husband says, it has good bones, think of the vision, I'm just going to walk away because <laughs> this is never happening again. Is it true? Is it twice as much time and twice as much money? Yeah, and they call it divorce dust for a reason. Absolutely. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> So it's, uh, it is a, a test in patience, which uh, typically on any given day I don't have a lot of anyway. So it's been a learning experience for me. This is our third build slash reno. So I, I kind of went into it knowing that there would be uh, zigs and zags and, and little things. Um, I love the creative piece of it, but I'm not the biggest fan of drywall dust. And... Um, so I, I kind of oscillate between this is going to be so amazing and I'm so excited and oh my God is why isn't this done yet I just can't wait for it to be done. <laughs> so, so basically you go to work for a break. I do I do and we just had our big inspection so we're almost ready to drywall and do the the spray foam and you know all the creative beautiful pieces are starting um, where we pulled off the roof and we've done all the electrical and all the boring code stuff and now we get to do all the decorating stuff which is really what I love. So That's it's awesome. coming well, into the best piece. Yes. Well thank you for sharing that. Yeah the problem um, with that is because you got these half hour T V shows that suggest the whole renovation takes a half an hour to do. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well the, for those of you that are that, that so Steve, Allison, uh, if you're not already uh, uh, following Michelle on Facebook, uh, you might want to connect offline, and then you can see uh, the, 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 the 
trajectory of this renovation uh, unfold. It's quite, it's quite the deal. Um, so, so as this is March the 8th when we're recording, um, it'll be a few weeks later when you hear this, but it is March the 8th. And, and before we get into the show, I just want to say uh, to all of us, especially to all of the women and most particularly to all the women who work in and make up the vast majority of the nonprofit sector, happy International Women's Day. Keep inspiring us all to be better. Okay, let's get started. Thank you for joining us on this, our 12th podcast. Today's topic is what happens when we hire fast and and fire slow. Um, HR mistakes we keep making in the nonprofit sector and what to do about it. Recruiting in the nonprofit sector is challenging. Recruiting fundraisers is even more challenging. There never seems to be enough of us, or the ones we find don't have enough experience, or they aren't good at, well, raising money. The pressure to get good fundraisers hired, a good fundraiser hired is intense. Then, if they're not a fit or if they don't perform, it can be hard to let them go. The title of today's podcast has been, has, is the well-worn phrase, hire slow and fire fast. And then that's what's built into the title. We, we all say it. Some of us have even had some success in making it come true. It just sounds right. But is it? In preparing for this podcast, I came across a recent article in Fast Company with the title, why slow to hire and quick to fire is bad advice. Clearly a provocative title, but is there truth in it? Allison, let's start with you. Do you agree with what Fast Company is saying, or has the old adage been more true for you? What's been your experience? Well, I think Fast Company, kudos to them for um, taking a provocative stance, but I can't say that I agree. I think any time I've rushed at hiring, what I've skipped is the process of really taking a hard look at the position profile and the requirements of the job and marrying those up with wherever the organization is today, but also 18 months to 24 months from today. Because uh, the reality that fundraising is not a half an hour activity, it's not something that happens fast, it takes time to build relationships. So when we think about hiring and we think about the position profile, we need to really pause and reflect on where the organization wants to get to in its fundraising efforts. And when you're in a rush to hire, I just don't think that there's the time and the space to do that really important work. And what you end up getting is what you've asked for, and it may not be what you need. All right. So, Boom. Just like that. Good. Boom. All right. Who wants, to, who, wants to, who wants to weigh in on that? Steve, Michelle, well, go ahead. But, you know, actually, I, I, I quite agree. And it's, um, I have to tell you, it's interesting because as referenced, you know, I've just returned from Toronto and I was out there uh, in my capacity as president of the board of the Canadian Association of Science Centers and we're in the process of hiring a new executive director. And part of that person's role is certainly a fundraising element to it. And, uh, and you know, so, so it's clearly not the only thing because it's a membership-based organization, but the, uh, so there's a lot of work behind that and, uh, and such. But nonetheless, my point is, is our discussions that we had were our previous hires, and we've got a great executive director in place right now, don't get me wrong, um, but we were talking about, and I kept on saying to the people that were on the selection panel, think about what we intend to do. And I feel that we're in an excellent position right now because we're going through a, str- a strategic plan redevelopment, and it's like, where do we want to be? What do we want to be when we grow up? The organization has grown exponentially in the last couple of years' time, and we can either go backwards 
or we can accelerate. I know, and uh, um, and that's what I think is really important. So it was to me, it was all about hiring not for the now, not for the today, but what do we want to be down the road, and um, and obviously finding the right fit. You know, the personalities, all those other pieces of the discussion. But I, I am a big, big believer in where do you want to get to? Otherwise, you just repeat the pattern, and you have no opportunity mm. for possible change. Michelle, what's your thoughts? Mm. Uh, yeah, I don't have anything provocative from from that side. I, I do agree that uh, you really need to have that long-term vision. Uh, the only caution that I would have is a lot of organizations, and it's referenced in that article, Vincent, that you provided, was if you can take too much time. I mean, every search that I've done, we've lost at least one good candidate because the the process that they're put through is so onerous that uh, good fundraisers are well-known. It's a small, incestuous little community. Um, they're going to go. They're, they're going to move, and we all know who the good ones are. So if you take too long and you drag them through too much of a process, um, you're either going to have to start again because you'll lose your top three and you don't want to hire the wrong person. Um, so you've got to do your diligence, but you can't take your time doing it either. You need to know the long-term plan before you put the ad out, that would be my piece, is know the strategy, understand where you're going before you start talking to people. I have to agree. Um, I, I wanted to respond to what you were saying, Michelle, about when does the hiring process actually start? And actually, in, for me, as well as I agree with you, Michelle, the hiring process starts long before the ad gets posted in the work Absolutely. that happens around strategy but also around real structural conversations about what it's going to take to deliver the strategy of the organization and, and who's on the bus that can fill those opportunities that we have in our structure. And then we start thinking about staffing and competencies and things like that. So the hiring process actually can begin, you know, six to 12 months before you even post your ad for the role that you're looking for. Absolutely. Uh, it certainly should. <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't. Hi, I'm leaving. We need to fill your role. Uh-huh. Most yeah, exactly. of the time it doesn't. Yes. Yeah, but 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 in a planful way, I get where you're coming from, Michelle uh, uh, Allison. Um, so I, it sounds like um, you know uh, that the, the provocative language needs to be broken down into once the actual hiring process starts. Don't dilly dally. But there's a lot of prep. There mm-hmm. is a ton of prep. Yep. A, a lot of thinking. Um, you know, I, I think we can explore a number of different threads, but one of the things that was here is what, what are the mistakes that we keep making in the nonprofit sector, or are we making mistakes? Maybe we're not. Maybe that's too provocative a statement. But are there things that we could do better in, um, in how we hire, how we manage, and how we release people? Who wants to, who wants to take I'll, that I'll on? I'll just sound off that a little bit, you know, with regards to, and it, you know, cause it picks up on part of the uh, – the namesake of this conversation, and it's panic. What I refer to as panic buying. Um, when uh, <laughs> we do, we're just thinking, I've got to fill that seat. I've got to get somebody in here because otherwise we're going to overwork other people. We're not going to uh, meet our goals. We're not going to meet our deadlines. And you know, often that doesn't turn out well. And you know, that happens in hiring. It happens in relationships and such too. That uh, you can repeat a cycle. So I just I think that is is a is is I really do believe that is a big problem and 
part of the symptom of that is just what the ladies were talking about, is not being able to you know, have the foresight, not thinking about what you really want. Now, that said, as you just mentioned, Vince, there's times where somebody comes in your office, um, I'm done. And it could be two weeks' notice. It could be, you know, I've got this great opportunity. I'm out of here today, and I'm sorry this isn't the way it should go, but this is the way it's going to go. And they're gone. And... And I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen in organizations I've worked for, and, um, and I've seen it happen with other organizations where they do, as I say, panic buy, and they bring somebody in too quickly. And it never ends well. It never ends well for the organization, and it doesn't bode well for the individual who's being hired either. Because then I often think about it. If I'm panic buying, they're panic selecting. So, And they're, mm-hmm. just, they're, take, they're taking an opportunity that's, that's weighed before them, and they don't really get challenged. And I think it's upon us as the organizations slash individuals who are doing the hiring process, you know, obviously to be asking the right questions, prodding, to see if there's a proper marriage there because I've experienced as well where you're interviewing people and they realize and they back out and they say, you know what, this isn't a good fit for me. Mm-hmm. And that often happens through the conversation to get to the point of making an offer. Well, and I think, you know, there's a whole other topic here, Vincent, around the panic buy and what we do with the people that we have on the bus uh, and getting a sense of how engaged are they anyway. Um, I, I have found that particularly with fundraising staff, I can usually tell when they're starting to waver on the depth of their engagement and um, I, don't, I don't shy away from having those conversations around how they're doing and how engaged they are and what we can do to keep them engaged. Um, but that's a topic for another day. But for today, I, I actually I, I would like to share a confessional. So it sounds like you've outed yourself, Steve, around your panic buy confession. Uh, I have a confession, and it's inclusive hiring processes. Um, I I have had a philosophy where when hiring – I will be on the front end of of getting to a short list of maybe two candidates, but then I provide the opportunity for those two candidates to meet the rest of the team. And in the past, as as much as I I am an inclusive, I love inclusion, um, I have found I've made bad hiring decisions based upon the preferences of the staff that will be working with this person. And and I I am so sad to admit that inclusive hiring, particularly allowing the staff that work with this person, especially if the person's going to be their boss, um, may not be the best decision, um, particularly because they will tend to skew toward someone that they think they can get along with. But that may not be the person that's going to challenge them and be a driver of performance in the fundraising team. And at the end of the day, what you need is a high-performing team, not a team that's going to have loads of fun together. Now, if we can have fun along the way, then great, but you also need high performers and sometimes creating a little bit of a, te- a little bit of tension on the team with your hiring selections can be a very positive thing. That's a very – thank you for that, that confessional, and that was, uh, <laughs> that, that was very important that you made yourself vulnerable out there because many people – especially in our sector, which is a very consultative sector in general, right? We tend to do a lot more consulting with each other and try to be more inclusive. And so that's a natural extension of that and, and maybe not so much in the for-profit so- sector. But I, I reminded of what Steve Jobs used to say about design, right? Uh, like he, if somebody said, well, we should do a focus group, he said, well, we'll, we'll end up with the lowest common denominator. I know what they need and I'm going to give it to them. I don't mm-hmm. need a focus group to tell me. And that's kind of a little bit like that. 
Um, it's an interesting approach, though, and I've seen it done especially in, um, in you know, some very highly consultative environments uh, like the nonprofit sector. Other thoughts related to that? I'd be curious. Uh, I love that idea. I, I, I like teams that are high-performing. We don't all have to love each other and get along every day, but we do need to learn how to be respectful and, and to hit our targets together as a team and be supportive. Um, one thing that I've seen is the use of if we want to give the team a voice but not bring them in uh, to the degree that we think that they are helping us select their boss for whatever reason, that's, that may or may not be the right thing for that team. Uh, we've actually used anonymous surveys, sort of survey monkey kind of thing, to test boundaries, expectations, uh, give the team a little bit of time to vent. Um, that helps uh, set some boundaries. They feel like they've been heard, uh, but at the end of the day, they're like Steve Jobs. You're going to get what you need, not particularly what you want. And so it's it's kind of that nice push and pull where they're brought in to a certain point, but the leadership is still driving the bus. Mm. Yeah, I think it's an excellent point, and I really appreciate the the comment being made about this. And it reminded me of something. Um, if, you, if I dare to share, is that um, you know, a handful of years ago or so, uh, plus I went back to U of A, did my executive MBA program, and you get thrown into, I shouldn't say thrown in, but you get uh, to be part of this cohort of a very diverse and dynamic group of individuals. And generally speaking, the people that are going into that program are, dare I say, high performers, they're in you know, very uh, upper level management, if you will, uh, positions, is for the most part. There's a bit of ego that goes with it. I remember vividly going in there. I truly remember going in there and going, okay, i got to you know, play my part. Man, did I have to check my ego at the door quickly. The point of this is I had to discover very quickly what I, you know, and recognize what I didn't know and being able to use the, um, the expertise of other people to help part of my drive. And I came to realize it was brilliantly done by the university because much like to this discussion, you know, while they weren't hiring, they were onboarding individuals for a program and building a team that would work extremely well together. And it just reminded me of that, as you mentioned, this, because we challenged each other. They could have had conformity. They could have turned around and put together a group of people that were very like-minded and, and never would have performed the way that we did and never would have challenged each other the way that we did. We all supported one another because we all had an independent goal, obviously, to graduate, but we also very quickly had a unified goal of everybody was in this for each other. And um, and you didn't let people get away with stuff. So I, I just liken it to that because from a hiring method, just, you know, again, from this, this reference point, I think is, is extremely uh, well thought because it does. It pushes people, and you're more likely to get a much better result out of the individuals and as a team. I really mm-hmm. like that thought. Thanks for sharing that thought because I really like that. And it's it, I find that it only works, though, if everybody on the team performs and you know when you have a cohort of EMBA students they've all paid to be there and they are motivated to get the most out of the experience but when it's the other way around that you're paying them um, and you land someone in the team who's a poor performer um, that you know the other half of this conversation is how to how to release people Um, that that's where things can get really messy is when you've got Mm -hmm. somebody in there that isn't pulling their weight Absolutely. I I want to come back to the um, uh, how, how do we release people as part of the conversation today. But before we get there, uh, before we leave this, I'm I'm curious about 
I've seen some leaders in my life who've managed to bring teams above uh, what we pay them. And that's really the magic, you know, where, where people, yeah. yeah, they get paid, but they're, that's not their primary motivator. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and those, those teams are typically high performing teams because some leader has galvanized them. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on that? Experiences like that? Mm-hmm. Well, I think hiring first from mission, um, mm-hmm. if you, if you don't get the sense that the candidate really cares about the actual work at hand, um, really rooting that out um, in a variety of different ways is important. But also, a galvanized leadership is where that all starts. You know, does your does your CEO have a compelling and urgent vision um, that will then attract talent? Because certainly, depending on the place where I'm working, my ability to track, attract great talent will vary depending on what the organization is shoot, shooting for. So not only does does a big, compelling, urgent vision bring in big dollars, it brings in big talent, too, because people want to be associated with a successful project, with an exciting project, uh, and something that they're going to be able to say, yeah, I did that. And that's that's where you get those high-performing teams. Yeah. Yeah, the financial carrot is lovely. Uh, but it it erodes very quickly uh, when you start to have to look at all the different things that are involved. It's it, it's a very short-lived kind of incentive. Yeah, and I would agree. Like I think, too, um, and I've had this an element to this conversation with a lot of folks over my time. And Vince, you and I may probably have talked about this many years ago. But that you know, there's a stage in a fundraiser's career, if I may offer, that um, I feel. And you can look at the resumes, and they, they move around, they move around, they move around, they move around. And they're moving around for a variety of reasons, one of which could be strictly um, compensation, and that's their motivator. They're not as driven by the mission. They're not as driven by the project. Sometimes they move and leave by own choice or, of course, the choice of the employee, employer excuse me, uh, based on performance. But then I do believe as we, you know, uh, gain ground on, uh, as an individual of where we want to be, then it is we're motivated more by the project, much to what you were just talking about. And um, you know, we get to a certain stage in our career anyway, and, and within our lives, where we've got a lifestyle that we're enjoying. But we come to realize, the light bulb, I believe, goes on in the head, and you go, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm not going to work. I'm going to something that is part of me that I really feel like I'm contributing to, and that is my big payday. And I can drive by and I can look at that building or I can look at that project or I can see this happening to this group of people and it's been positive and I've been part of that journey. And that is way more valuable to me. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think we should be doing more selling of that in our in our sector, actually, because mm-hmm. there's, there's elements of that in every organization's mission that I've looked at, but that's not yeah. often what they're selling. Oh no 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 absolutely no yeah the the opportunity of it and and I think it's rather unfortunate because I also believe what happens and and, it, and there's many aspects that cause this but we end up losing in this industry a lot of really good people because they do flounder they don't find that that speaks to them now I had an experience 20 plus years ago um, where I left one organization and uh, after many years went into the private sector and then I was going uh, looking at coming back to the pro- uh, non-profit sector that was after about a year transition and I was truly at the table the boardroom table with this organization here in the city offer in front of me and I turned and said to them I can't do this mm-hmm. I-, I kid you not I-, I was sitting there with the executive director and said I can't do this I said, I'm not your guy and they said what do you mean yes we want to offer and I said no I don't have the passion for this 
it, it hit me right at that moment. I'm going to waste their time and I'm going to waste my time because I didn't have the passion for what they wanted. And that is a really, I have to say, it was a, this proud moment for me and it defined where my career started to go um, because it made me recognize what this industry, what this opportunity can provide for me. And what it might default by extension provides for my family because my children have been very much involved in my career and the point of, you know, as we all do, <laughs> having our families volunteer one thing or another and get involved <laughs> in things they take on their own tasks. Um, and and again, it comes back to I don't feel like I go to work. And, uh, you know, I, I go to something that, is, that provides me with a great opportunity to contribute back. And that's why I feel when I go through an interview process with an individual, in this case here for fun reason, I that's really a big goal of mine when I'm sitting at the table with them, trying to flush out do they fit to that with us? Do we inspire mm. them? Are they going to be mm. inspired by us and the, and then will they feel that? And it's not going to be about compensation and whatnot. It's going to be about what they can contribute and what we can contribute to them as well. So. That's a great point, Steve. Anytime I've uh, challenged a client to put out their quote job ad uh, they always give me a job description. And I look at them and I say, what is the employee value proposition here? Why why do you deserve to have a fantastic fundraiser? What makes this opportunity, this leadership team, this mission deserve them? You You need to have that piece in there so that you can have that conversation and really talk about genuine and legitimate mission goals and value alignment. And if, if you're not articulating that, uh, I think that you're going to miss the boat on some really strong candidates. I agree. I agree. Allison, what were your thoughts on that, if any? Well, I was thinking as Michelle was talking about how, how smart that recommendation is, particularly because it's a very competitive uh, environment for, for good talent. It has to be an elbows-up activity differentiating yourself as the employer. And I, I don't see that changing anytime soon. I think that there is there really is a shortage of top, particularly major gift officer talent in, in Calgary particularly. I don't know if it's the same in Edmonton. Mm-hmm. Um, so you do need to fight the fight to differentiate yourself and your cause and what you're trying to achieve and um, inspire the applicants to choose you as a potential path in their career. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you a story if I can, is that, um, you know, for our organization, we'll get this later on, but a project that we're working on is a you know, capital campaign. Well, a year and a half ago, we were in the process of hiring a campaign manager. And we'd gone through a half a dozen interviews uh, with different folks. And, and we're, we were taking our time because I, I wasn't rushed, but I needed to find somebody. So we were prepared to take a few months to go through it. Anyway, I'm in the middle of an interview with a young lady who we're now into the second interview process with. And um, and I realized you know, right in the moment I'm talking to the entirely wrong person. And the person I should be talking to, I haven't even spoken to about the job. And the light went on in my head. And, and this was a person who didn't have a formal, dare I say, fundraising background. She dabbled in it a bit. Um, she ran another organization outside of the city and it just recently moved back to Edmonton, but had history with our organization because 12 years ago she worked here when she was in university. But I suddenly realized in that very moment what we really needed and what, I, what, what we needed. And this comes back to our earlier conversation. What did I need for, this, for our campaign and for our, our organization, the project, downstream? 
because we already had the talent we were talking about to that person. What we needed was somebody to rein that talent in and keep that group focused. So it, you know, it picks up a bit earlier of what Allison said with regards to challenging one another. And this is the person that, I, that came to mind. We ended up hiring. Uh, but when it came to mind, I thought, she can challenge the people who need to make the ask and make sure that we're staying on task because we're busy people. We've got a lot of things going on. And it, what I'm trying to say here is it was about recognizing back to us what did we really need, what did we really want, um, enforcing the conversation with ourselves. Because otherwise, I was having a conversation with a person who wasn't going to be passionate enough about us. And I may very well have made the mistake of hiring the wrong person. Mm-hmm. And it would have done us no good, and, it, and I wasn't even rushing at it. And I was, you know, I was taking my time only because I had the time, and I and I was thinking I'm doing a good job here. We're going to get the right person on board here, but I'm not asking myself the right questions, let alone asking them the right questions. And it was an well, aha there you moment. go. Yeah, it was an aha <laughs> moment, and I kid you not, I reached out to this person and said, I'm going to send you a, 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 a job posting. Let's take a look at it. I'm going to call you next week, and over a period of a couple weeks' time. Uh, convinced her that this is something she should try and you know what it was out of her comfort zone but I knew she had the chops to be able to step up and challenge herself enough and she's done a brilliant job that's great what a great story I um I, I it's it's I, we're not done with this topic yet yeah. today um and uh and and I and uh but, but there's so much more to talk about just on that aspect um, that will will definitely. Uh, I've written down a lot of stuff for future podcasts around that. I want to give. I, I know there's going to be people listening to this podcast going, "How do I? What do I do when someone's not a fit? What do I do when someone's not a performer? Um, what, what 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 do I need? To, how do I how do I go forward um, and do this properly and uh, appropriate? Not all of us have large HR offices that can come and make that happen for us. What should we be thinking about? How do we release people properly? Well, I think even if we have uh, large HR offices, um, in many offices that have HR, they're, they're there as a business partner. They're there to guide you as a manager to, to do the work. So we all need to get good at recognizing when we've got someone who's not performing or isn't engaged. Um, and part of that, like I said earlier, that tension on a team, applying the right amount of tension to every member of the team um, letting them know what the expected goals are, what are our targets, um, what does performance look like on this team. Um, sometimes that will root out a low performer, and with the, the right amount of, sort of performance management, i.e. really focusing on that individual, really focusing on what they said they do, what they actually did, how they were performing, will sometimes drive them to opt out on their own. And really, for most organizations, that is the best outcome, that somebody says, you know what, this is not a fit for me, I think I need to move on, and then delightful summary. And I, I would say in in maybe 50% of the cases of a low performer in my world, that's been the case. We've been able to really performance manage, create enough tension that the person said, this just isn't for me. Um, but in the other half of cases, yeah, you have to make that tough decision that the person needs to be exited. Um, and hopefully by that point, it's a no-surprise situation because, again, with staff, you need to be constantly dialoguing with them about how they're doing, how they're performing, what's going on, so that by the time you get to the point where you are the one saying, look, I don't think this is working out, um, there's no surprise. And then they go, yeah, you know what? 
And so in almost all cases, save for one, which was tragic for me, in almost all cases where I've exited the person, they weren't surprised. And in that instance, being able to work with the professionals and with legal to to do it properly and then support them in their exit from the organization and ideally allowing them in their career to save a bit of face and then and then move to maybe an environment that inspires them more than the one that they were in. What a compassionate approach. I um I appreciate it's hard. the professional. Yeah, it's hard, hard and uh, it's exhausting. It's uh it's yeah. gut wrenching the first couple of times that you need to do it. because uh, you <laughs> like these people. You know, I, I go to work, I'm a working mother, so when I go in I work and then I leave and then I'm a home mother. Um so when I'm working, I'm working. I'm not hanging out and socializing, but I still get to really liking the people that I work with. And in many cases, it's the reason I go in every day. But then when you realize that somebody's not fit and you have to do that, oh, it's just, it's very hard, but it's like they say, you know, you have to jump in with both feet. You, you can't do it subtly. You can't be subtle in the exit of somebody from an organization. It's not a subtle activity. It's distinct. It has a set language. Uh, and it, it needs to be precise because you don't want to leave any confusion in the person's mind as to what transpired. Yeah, I agree. Michelle, did you want to weigh in with some of your thoughts? Yeah, I love your use of the word compassion. That was the word that was coming up uh, in my mind as I was listening to Allison, and, and I couldn't agree more uh, with everything that you said. Uh, I think that there are some people out there, they're, they're afraid of the crunchy bits, they're afraid of the difficult conversations, they like it that it's vague, you, you know, you're just not here anymore, here's your check, here's your box. Uh, and some people try to allow the person to stay and to say their goodbyes and, you know, they get that extra week and they can leave when they want. Um, and what they're not thinking of in those instances is the rest of the team who's remaining um, that is a traumatic and emotionally draining experience on everybody. It's not just about the person who's leaving. It's about the people that are left. And you have to consider them as well. It's not mm-hmm. just about the person who's exiting. So while every organization is different and, and the right solution is different for everyone, I would caution to be mindful and respectful of, of the team that's being left behind as well. Excellent advice, Michelle. Thank you for that, Steve. But I think also, and I think also though too, is that it's mindful of the team that is left behind, but their journey before they become the team left behind. Because if the person's not the right fit, are they causing a strain on those people in the first place? Because exactly. sometimes mm-hmm. there's that journey. Then once they're left behind, and they're sign a big relief, you know, and they're they're like, okay, now we're there. Now we can regroup. We can be the team we want to be. And and move forward. So there is that element. You're, you know, I completely agree with what you're saying. But you know, I look at it too as the the before the fact piece of it. You know, um, one thing that um, you know I realized many many years ago, even in a, in a career before I became into got into fundraising in '89, um, was I'm not actually afraid to let somebody go. Call it as you will. Call it firing. So. As my wife says to me about this, she says, you know, you're pretty black and white, just like your heart. It's black when it comes to Wow. Very romantic on International Women's Day. Yeah, exactly. I know. Yeah, I know. And the, um, so, um, and it's because I feel that I'm doing the person a disservice. And I, I, if I'm not 
um, if, I, if I let their journey linger too long with us. No, don't get me wrong. I don't want to sit there and walk into the end of the plank and kick them from behind and off they go. I certainly believe in, first off, I believe in once you hire a person to do a job, let them do their job. My responsibility here in any job that I do, be it even on in a board of directors that I sit on and if I'm in a leadership capacity there, identify the roles people are supposed to be doing. In this case, hire people to do their job. My responsibility is to provide them with the opportunities and the tools and the support to do their jobs to the best possible ability. You know, and um sounds so fluffy when I say that, but it, that's really what I believe, and I don't want to be then over-managing them and such, too. And then through their journey, then if I'm able to identify what you know what's working, what's not working for them, and through that, if it turns out that it's not a good fit and it's not a good journey or they're not performing, sometimes, as well, I recognize, while that person's not performing, right, it's not even them. It could be the rest of the team. It could be, you know, a whole variety of personality reasons. It could be me. So do I then look at the opportunity to then be able to try to keep them around and whatnot? Sure. But I also am very, very prone to being able to have those discussions and try to weed out how is this person feeling about it now, too? Because I don't want to waste their time. I actually had an opportunity or a situation where after letting somebody go, this was a number of years back, and and it was, you know, they're, they're never really comfortable. Don't get me wrong. I'm going to sit there and say, you know, it's black and heart. But the, um, um, the, the, this person, sorry, um, the person who I'd let go contacted me probably about a month and a half later and said, I can't thank you enough for letting me go. I was like, wow. <laughs> and they said, I realized, he says, yeah, I was a little bit disheartened about it, but I realized I didn't enjoy what I was doing. And now I've found something that I really like to do. And I followed the person's career. They're doing really well. They've accelerated. They've grown. They never would have grown here the way that they did there. And they've changed organizations, but they've done extremely well. And they're a good fundraiser. You know, that person is a really good fundraiser. They just didn't have the right fit. And um, um, so, anyway, to that. So I'm not afraid to go to that to that state of it because I really feel it's incumbent on me to a higher right, but then also to um, to go through the exit process properly. And and you know I fully respect you know the compassion piece that you were the, the reference to it and 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 you're spot on right because um, I have seen the ugly moments you know of it. But I, um, I guess just ultimately just trying to say is that um, you know pretty black and white about it that I'll I'll be pretty straightforward with folks and let them know where I sit and and and, and sometimes it does create the self selection, but I also don't want to I know of a person frankly who uh, a colleague within the industry who will not will not and has straight out said this will not fire somebody they will let themselves select said, you're wow. letting people linger. Yeah, I, I kid you not. You're letting people linger for months, and in one case, a couple of years, when you know they should not be there. Ooh. And you are wasting well, their time. Yeah. I hope well, that there's not less, even, less, less... Go ahead. Go ahead. Not even, not even a waste of, of their time. A waste of dollars that oh, yeah. could go toward leveraging and raising actual more mm-hmm. dollars to support mm-hmm. whatever the cause would be. But then the worst part is that anyone who's a high performer on a team where there's an underperformer that's not being held accountable, yep. the high performers will leave. You're not going to be they able will. to keep the talent when you've got uh, some they dead will. weight. I, I don't want to be rude about it, but when you've got dead weight on the team, 
getting it through and out quickly because the worst thing that happens is your good people will go and they want to see you act and do something about it. And I know that because I'm entering the confessional for the second time on this call. (laughs) I, for one, can admit that I held on to someone too long in my career. And this is, you know, I've been around for 20 years, so who knows who that person is? Let's not draw conclusions. But I held on to someone for too long and I am, I am um, convinced that some departures that happened during that person's tenure are a direct result of my indecision. Inability to lead. Wow. Yeah. I didn't so, make the decision quickly enough for good them. For you, though. Good for you. So there's, a whole, there's, a whole, there's a whole other uh, podcast on confessionals. Yeah. This is a super interesting discussion, and I'm not the least bit surprised. There's lots to think about. Surprise. Um, it's a huge topic. And we will schedule more on this in the future, but I'm also mindful of, 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 of your time. So I, I want to uh, thank you all. You've all been great guests. Steve, Alice, and Michelle, I look forward to, to when we can each have you back on the podcast. But before we go, I want to I wanna give each of you a chance to tell us a little bit more about what's, 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 uh, what's your passion right now, what's turning your crank, uh, you know, where people can reach you. And I'm going to start with you, Michelle. Anything you want our, our listening audience to know? Oh, well, thank you so much for the platform. We're just so excited here at Telespark in Calgary to welcome the Wales exhibit. We've been waiting for it for quite some time. It's been around for 10 years, but this is the last stop for this exhibit, so it's your last opportunity to see it. And it's a wonderful blend of biology and culture and, you know, just the science of the ocean and whales and evolution. Um, and they're just amazing creatures. I don't know anyone that, that isn't just mesmerized when they see a dolphin or a whale or anything like that. So I definitely encourage people to drop by, come in. It's a free admission with your ticket to Telespark. And it's only here till June 20th, and then it's gone forever. Then you're going to have to go to New Zealand to see it. So definitely. That's too far. That's too far to go. I know. So come by and see us. And if it's a rainy day and you're looking for a place to bring your kids, we are the spot. So That's awesome. I haven't been. I'm looking forward. I'm super excited about the whales. So I'm definitely going to go, and I hope the folks that are listening will take the chance. So it ends on June 20th. June 20th. We we better get going. That's right. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Michelle. Steve, what do you have to say uh, that you want the audience to hear and remember? Well, we've got a lot going on here, too, at Telstra Science in Edmonton. You know, one of the, you know, I referenced earlier on about our campaign, we have a, our campaign is called the Aurora Project. So it's a re-envisioning, redevelopment, and expansion of our facility. It's been going on for a couple years' time now. It's a $40 million project. And we are in the midst of um, a renovation right now, complete renovation to our space gallery and to our dome theater. It's the largest dome theater in Canada, and it will be the best um, dome presentation in the entire world because it'll be 10k when it opens and that doesn't exist anywhere in the world right now um, what do you mean like uh, like that's is that a, is that like 4k but more oh yeah oh yeah okay so yeah. like that's, yeah, it's, a, that's, it's a, not, that's a digital digital word i don't know yeah. that word 
Yeah, it's not presented anywhere in the world right now. The technology exists. We're going to be the first installation here. And we're opening both the Space Gallery and the Dome Theater in mid-July. It's going to be spectacular, and that's that's one part of the journey. Then there's going to be other evolutions of pieces, uh, including expansion. But it'll it'll complete in about two and a half years' time by the time we go through all of that. But in the here and now as well, referencing towards exhibits, we've got the Popnology exhibit here, which includes the DeLorean from Back to the Future. But one that I'm extremely proud of is the Terry Fox exhibit. And this is something that was developed by the Canadian Museum of Nature and the Terry Fox Center. And we opened it up uh, about a month ago now, and it'll be open with us until mid-September. But it's a spectacular exhibit talking about massive Canadiana when it gets into Terry Fox and telling his story. And it's got the van, it's got his prosthetic leg, shirts that he ran in, tells his story like you wouldn't believe. And it is a real emotional journey for people to go through because you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who doesn't know who Terry Fox is in Canada. And of course, kids who came about long after Terry passed ran Terry Fox runs. So it's it's really oh. interesting. And just to close the loop on things, because this is a Calgary-Edmonton connection, if I may, is we are opening up in our IMAX theater in mid-April the Pandas, uh, new, uh, new films, brand new Pandas IMAX film. And I relate that because at the Calgary Zoo, right across the parking lot, if you will, from Telus Spark, um, the Pandas are coming to Calgary. And, the Pandas uh, are coming. Yeah, they are, and we're really excited with that. In fact, we're partnering up with the folks at the zoo there uh, for some cross-promotional activities. It's going to be a spectacular film, and uh, this will be the only place it can be seen in Alberta. That's great. Wow. That's awesome. The um, the Terry Fox thing is so interesting that kids today uh, in elementary schools across Canada uh, learn about Terry Fox today and run Terry Fox runs today long after the live event. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's you know, so great. Yeah, you know, and there's so those great. of us that are of the, of the vintage that we uh, we remember where we were when we heard Terry passed. And mm-hmm. um, so to see his journey, honestly, it is it is an incredible exhibit. I saw it the day after it opened up in Ottawa three years ago, and it wasn't mm-hmm. intended to travel. They built it just as a temporary exhibit, and I said to them when I was there, I said, you've got to travel this thing. It took them a number of months to decide they should, and it's it's gone to a few locations across Canada. After us, it's going to go up to... Um, Prince George up in northern BC. My hometown. Yeah, and it, yeah, exactly. And it should just keep on moving. And if you get the chance to see it, go see it. It's brilliant. Awesome. Thanks. Allison, you get to close out the show today with what you want us to, uh, to be thinking about. Thanks for that, Steve. Oh, thanks for the opportunity. I um, just want to say to anyone who's listening, uh, while International Women's Day has, has since passed, uh, there's still another opportunity coming up to recognize some of the women in your life, your your sisters, your your mother, your aunts, your grandparents, uh, with Mother's Day, which is coming up, and I challenge each and every one of you to go online and seek out a women's charity and perhaps make a donation in the name of some of the women in your life uh, as a way of thanking them for the contributions that they're making, because uh, the need still is out there for these um, these women's causes, and if you choose. YW Calgary, then I would like to thank you personally for making that donation. Oh, that was awesome. Thanks for that. Honestly, and, uh, Allison, sorry, Vince, I have to say, like, that that totally touched me. And I'm yeah. going to do that. I'm going to make a donation oh. just to exactly talk about I love that idea. Love me that. too. It very, you, you, you struck a chord with me and you will with our listening audience. So um, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, so, folks, with that, our gift of another Brain Trust Philanthropy has been committed. Well, that's about it for this episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy. I hope you will join us again next month when our topic will be 
Evidence Matters, Why the Nonprofit Sector Needs to Embrace Research. Our amazing panel will include Tony Myers, Jay Love, Kathy Mann, and John Gormerly. Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Lauren McMurray at Alchemy Communications and by me, Vincent Duckworth. Brain Trust Philanthropy is recorded in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta. Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Powered by Vitreo. You can subscribe to Brain Trust Philanthropy on iTunes or by visiting our website at vitreogroup.ca. Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth. <laughs>